<clears throat> Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be back. And uh, I have to tell you, you know, the first time they invite you someplace, it's, uh, it's nice. It's nice because they don't know who you are. And, uh, and you hope for the best. I was asked to, to speak in um, Calgary, Canada in November. And, um, and Baruch Hashem, they had over 100 people who showed up in Calgary, Canada. I don't know if there are, I don't know if there are 100 people. 100 Jews in Calgary, Canada. I don't know if they were all Jews who showed up, but, but, uh, so many people showed up and they said, well, look what you did. And I said, it wasn't me. They never heard of me. You know what I mean? So I can't take credit for it. When you invite me back the next time, then I can take credit for it. So the second time they invite you back, and then that's usually it. So, um, you know, when you get back a, a third time, so you know, that's already a chazaka. So we can put a little A over there. Chazaka. That's why we finish the Torah, we say chazak. Chazak veniz chazek, because three times makes it a chazaka. It makes it very, very strong. And I gained a lot during the times I've been here in chazak. Not only from the people that I met, but I finally figured out how in Scrabble I have a word with a Q that doesn't need a U. <laughs> so I can now spell chazak and be able to not only be able to help all of these wonderful, wonderful people who otherwise wouldn't know about their Judaism and teach them Torah, but I can also get a triple word score, and uh, that's like 30 points. Okay, so um, so that's about it. Uh, I was asked to suddenly, uh, you know, during while I'm talking, ask everyone to please support Chazak, so please support Chazak, and uh, so that we understand what that means, please give them your money, Okay. Not everyone always gets what that means. You know, please support them. People think that means like, you know, give them a round of applause. No, take out your money and give it to them. I was once speaking... (laughs) This was terrible. I was once speaking for a tzedakah in Yerushalayim that basically gives food to poor people. That's just what they do. And uh, they invited me to speak at their dinner. And they said, you know, tell the people that they should, you know, give us money. but, But do it subtly. I said, me? Of course, you know. So, uh, so they make this big Malava Malka, which is for free, and they invite people to come, and they have entertainment and speaker, you know. And somebody said to me, well, this is so nice. Why are they doing this for free? <laughs> so I said, well, let me explain to you why. And I held up my roll, and I said, this is food. And they want to give this food to people who don't have any food. So they're giving you some food now, so you'll give them money to buy more food. For people who are poor, and I turned to the organizer who at this point was like sinking into the ground, and I said, subtle enough? (laughs) That is my gift of subtlety. Anyway, uh, they tell a story. I I must have told the story already, but luckily as many people are in my age group also, and they don't remember from moment to moment. So, uh, you know, you reach a certain age, and and you start to meet new people all the time, and sometimes it's family members. Anyway, so... uh, um, now I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> Gosh, I hate when that happens. What was I saying? A story. Oh, that narrows it down. Thanks. <laughs> Once upon a time, there was a king. Anyway, <laughs> that's one of the stories they teach us in rabbi school. But um, 
But the fact of the matter is, that's the TorahAnytime.com camera over there, just in case you're wondering, uh, so that uh, I, I was also asked to mention about TorahAnytime.com, so it gives you an opportunity to be able to see this year, and they'll edit out all the parts that don't make any sense like this one, and then you can watch it straight through so that it makes more sense. All right? All right. Baruch Hashem. In any event, uh, whenever I come to speak in Chazak, one of the most challenging things that I need to deal with is what I'm going to speak about. And you, it, I really one time should just bring you the emails that go back and forth, you know, about the topic. And, and I'm sitting there trying to clarify what the topic is. And as I do, it becomes clear that it's not exactly clear what I'm supposed to speak about, you know. So I, I, I'm going to focus on as much as I can what the main focus is tonight. And then I'll tell you how I want to get there which is perhaps dramatically different. The first thing that we want to talk about, which is obviously so important, is the fact that, you know, we've just gone, we are going through a very, very difficult time in Eretzel. And uh, we've been going through a difficult time for years now. 9,000 rockets were shot at us. And, uh, you know, the home is destroyed and people killed and people injured and, you know, and, and, you know, terrible, terrible to the point that finally, you know, even the present government, you know, figured out that you got to do something, and they went in, and uh, I can't tell you the sense of terror that a person has to feel when you're going from house to house, and you don't know if it's booby-trapped, and you don't know if people are going to shoot at you, and they surround, they surround themselves with children when they shoot, and all these terrible things that, that a soldier has to go through. And, uh, you know, the, the, the fear and the difficulty. And all of us, of course, share that concern with all of the people who are there. And that is one terrible situation. And when I told somebody I was asked to speak about the terrible situation taking place, they immediately assumed I was talking about the financial disaster that is taking place here in America. And I cannot minimize that on any level. There was a Rosh Hashiva I know who came for his annual fundraising trip to America like he does every year to support his yeshiva and he didn't even make enough money to pay for his airfare. You know, there, there is someone I know who has a, has a yeshiva in Israel and he's number 11 on this guy's list. This guy has 10 tzedakot that are more important to him than him. And he's only number 11 and this guy was getting from him $35,000 a month and the guy called him up a couple of months ago and said, I can't send you the money anymore. And by the way, if you hear of any job openings, let me know. He lost everything, you know. And, you know, yeshivas are, you know, in, in a disaster. I don't have to tell you, an organization like Chazak, which relies, which doesn't have a student body in the traditional sense of the word. It relies only on, on community, you know, to, to support them and to help them, you know, what a situation like this means. I mean, everybody's in such terrible times. So we take a look at this time and we say, okay, what can we do? What can we do? How can we change the situation? So I'd like to get metaphysical just for a moment, if I can. It's not usually my area, but, uh, but I want to just get into a little bit of the bigger picture. <clears throat> we know that throughout the past 2,000 years, 
we have been in the exile that has been known as the exile of Edom, Edom being the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire, of course, morphed into Western civilization and all of the various countries that, you know, that we've had to deal with because of that. And it's been, uh, it's been a difficult 2,000 years, needless to say. But at least the lines were clearly delineated. Because when the brachot, the blessings, were given out to Yaakov and his brother Esav, right, the, the blessings were clear. Hakol kol Yaakov Esav. The hands are the hands of Esav. And Esav, the, the name itself is, comes from the word Oseh, to do. He uses his hands, that's what he does. Vahakol kol Yaakov. But Yaakov relies on his voice. And that has always been our salvation. Whenever we try to go one-on-one with the nations of the world, those of you who are students of history know the terrible, terrible situation that took place with Bar Kokhba. Bar Kokhba put together an army that was so incredibly powerful. In order to get into this army, you had to uproot a tree with one hand while riding on a horse. That was that was the type of of soldiers that he had. That was the might that he had, and he managed to hold off the Roman Empire for three years, and then he lost. And it was a terrible slaughter and devastation that followed. You know that was even worse than the destruction of the temple, and the and Jews were were forbidden to go into Yerushalayim, and all kinds of terrible things that came about. They uh, raised the, you know, destroyed the Temple Mount, put a temple up to, to Jupiter. It, it, was, it was just devastating. We tried to meet the Romans on equal terms when it came to the, a show of arms, and we were not successful. But we Jews have survived through one power, Hakol Koyakov, the power of our tefillah, the power of our prayer. But the very last enemy that we're going to face is going to be the enemy that comes from Yishmael. The Arizal says this, the Vilnagoan says it, a number of, the Zohar Kodesh says it, it's in many sources, that the final enemy that we're going to need to defeat before we come to the final redemption is going to be the Yishmael. Yishmael, who is the other son of Avraham. And Yishmael's name means God will hear his voice. I have to tell you that one thing about the Arabs, one thing about the Muslims, they are not embarrassed to pray. I can't speak for everybody here, but, you know, every now and then on one of these trips, I'm forced to have to pray in the airport. And you get a little self-conscious having to have to stand up in the middle of everything and start, you know, swaying. And uh, so you try to find the most quiet, out-of-the-way location that you can, you know. Some people I know, they go into a phone booth, you know. They just (laughs) stay in there. Someone says, what are you doing? He says, I'm making a long-distance call. (laughs) They don't want to be noted. They They don't want to be caught praying. But you don't see Muslims have that problem. They pull out their little thing, they hit the ground, you know, put the head down, and they just pray wherever they are. And it doesn't bother them. They're not embarrassed. 
Yishmael. That means the final battle becomes a battle between someone who has our own powers. I, I, I don't know if this is the best example of it, but if you saw Spider-Man 3, so, you know, so eventually Spider-Man has to fight this guy who also has Spider-Man powers, you know. And that's really hard because you're fighting somebody who has your own powers. And, of course, Spider-Man wins because otherwise it, the movie would be called after the bad guy. You know what I mean? But, uh, but Superman has to fight another Superman. When somebody with special powers has to fight somebody who has the same powers, that's devastating. When we fight Asaph, we're coming at him with a completely different weapon. He's coming from one place and we're coming from another. But when we're fighting an enemy who knows how to pray and is unembarrassed to pray, doesn't mind, you know, hitting the ground and putting his head down and praying, you know, not only that, but he took it all from us. That was the power that he had. It's brought down in traditional Jewish sources that Muhammad went into a synagogue on Yom Kippur. And Yom Kippur is the only time that we don't pray three times a day, we pray five times a day. It's also the only time when we actually get down on our knees and put our head on the ground and bow down. So Muhammad saw this and he said, and he says, uh, that's cool. We'll do that too. So they pray five times a day. They get down on their knees. And they put their head. I mean, I would think that such a thing is so bizarre. But my father once invited over this uh, family that he knew who, who weren't very observant and didn't know too much. And invited him over to our house for a shana. And... Um, and my father met him years later, and he says, you know, Marty, I have to tell you, I was so touched by what I saw at your house that I came home and I told my parent, I told my family, from now on, we're going to also keep Shabbat. We're going to keep the Sabbath. So every Friday night, I bring my family around, I make Kiddush, we make Hamotzi, I dip the bread in the honey, then we have the apple and the honey, you know what I mean? Every Friday night, just like you did. <laughs> So that's more or less what happened with Muhammad, only it was Yom Kippur. And uh, that's why there's no apple and honey. But, uh, you know, you, you, they, but they picked up from us this idea of prayer, and they pray. So I want to talk, if I can, about prayer. Because, you know, tefillah is something that is so incredibly important. Take the average day. The average day in the Jewish life. Assuming you're not getting married, you're not getting buried, you're not having a child, you know what I mean? You're not, uh, it's not a holiday, it's not a special occasion. The most time of the day that is dedicated to what we would call ritual is tefillah. That's it. Three times a day we're supposed to pray. Now, I used to run an organization, a youth organization on Long Island. And I used to give out an evaluation. And there were a number of questions on the evaluation. And one question was, what part of the program did you like the least? And they used to say, the tefillah, the prayer. Later on, there was a question. It said, what did you think was the most important part of the program? And they said, tefillah. Yeah? They thought that was the most important part. And it was also the part that they liked the least. I want to tell you an amazing story. I think it's an absolutely amazing story. I don't know if everybody does. You know, I have... Uh, a friend of mine who works in rabbinical placement 
and working with rabbis, you know, getting their jobs, helping them keep their jobs after they get their jobs, you know, helping them find new jobs after they lose their jobs, you know. And uh, he has to try to negotiate between the communities and the rabbis. So he told me, I'm going to meet with this one rabbi, and it's not clear that his contract is going to be renewed. He said, why? He says, because there are people who are upset that he's not doing anything about the talking during the services. I said, well, what can he do? What can anybody do? If you're in a shul and everybody wants to talk, what do you want the rabbi to do? So the rabbi can do the angry rabbi look, which is one of the things they teach us. He walks over to the person Davin and goes, <laughs> and everybody stares back at him. <laughs> and eventually it's quiet and he tells the guy to go ahead and then everyone starts talking again, you know? So someone tells me this one rabbi, he, if, if someone's talking, he comes down from his seat and stands right next to the person who's talking. I said, that's good, but you only have one rabbi and you've got 50 people talking. He's going to have to be running around the shul the whole time. You know what I mean? Like, that's not going to add to it. I said, you can't do anything if people don't care. So I told this story over at my brother's Shabbos table and he had another guest there. And this guy starts sinking into the chair, which was no mean accomplishment because he was very tall. And he's slowly, slowly getting almost to my height. And I, I see him going down, you know. And I said, well, what's the matter? And he says, I'm one of those guys. I show up at, you know, about the middle of the Torah reading, you know, and I come into shul and I talk the whole time during davening. It's true. I'm one of those guys. So I said, I said, now there's nothing that the rabbi can do to get you to stop talking. He says, nothing. I said, so what I think we should do is cancel the service. Have the rabbi say, listen, we're going to have an early service for anybody who wants to pray, and then everybody else can come to shul. Why should we waste our time by interrupting everybody with a davening and a Torah reading? We'll just sit and talk. We'll put in shul big tables with refreshments. You know what I mean? Have everybody come to shul. Everybody will sit there. They can put on a talus. You know what I mean? And everyone can sit in their place and talk, and there's no, there's no problem. And he said to me, he says, no, 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 I want to go to shul. I said, you want to go to shul and talk and not daven? He says, yeah. Yeah, but I wouldn't want to miss shul. (laughs) I want to go to shul and not daven. You know, he says, by the way, I have, I have that option because the early minion finishes by the time I get there and they're already having their kiddush. I could just go right downstairs to the kiddush, you know, have a few drinks, talk to my friends, but I want to go to shul where they're reading the Torah. I don't want to listen to it, but I want to be there. I want to be in a shul where they're, where they're davening Musaf. I don't want to daven it, but I do want that to be going on in the background as I talk to my friends. And I found this to be absolutely astounding. But do you understand what the message is? What the message is, is that inside the heart of every Jew, there's a part of us that wants to daven. We want to pray. We just don't know how. And it's, it is hard to do it. Now, if you had a proper Jewish education, it's not hard because you've memorized the prayers and you push the automatic pilot button and you pray by rote. And that's it, you know, take the three steps back, take the three steps back, and you can read the newspaper, you know. And my favorite is the people who get a phone call in the middle. You know, okay, your phone call goes, okay, but... But then they answer, uh-huh, 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 uh-hu
<laughs> I don't blame the people because of the amount of concentration they're putting into their prayers, they could still have another conversation, you know what I mean? They could read something, they could do whatever they want, you know? There's no reason that should really be interrupting them, you know? And it's so sad, but you, but you see this. That there's, there's people who want to relate to it. They want to pray. They want it to be a part of them. <sighs> Says the Rambam. What is the source for the mitzvah to pray in the Torah? It is in the second paragraph of Shema. In the words, You will serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. To serve God with all your soul means that you have to be prepared to give up your life for that which you believe in. And we Jews have had to do that on too many occasions. But to serve God with all your heart and the Right? The Gemara asks, and that's what the Rambam is quoting, what is avodah shebelev? That is tefillah. The avodah is a work. It's an effort. It takes effort to pray. There is no way that a person can possibly pray, you know, by switching to the automatic pilot mode. Right? That's really annoying. <laughs> Thank you. Right? You can't do it. It's not real. You know? I've been... In shuls, where I take my three steps back, and the kid person next to me goes like this. Now, I, that's impossible. You just can't say that many words. You can't even think that many words in that amount of time, you know? There are times that I take my three steps forward, and the guy on this side of me is already done, you know? Sometimes he forgets the yellow of That's already good, you know? So he takes his three steps back, and the phone. Ha, 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 ha. And he does the You know? And it's absolutely amazing. It's not impossible to do it that quickly. Because deep down everyone just wants to do it, but it's an effort, it's a struggle. So I want to try to change our approach to it if I can in the time that we have this evening. Because this is such an unbelievable... We know it's the most important thing. We know that we have the power to change things. Let me speak about Kabbalah just for a moment. It's not really my field. You know, I have a friend who is a Kabbalist. Whenever I see him, he says, You're fine, how am I? <laughs> Always takes me a minute to get that one. But, um, you know, there's, uh, there are people who are much more into it than I am. But how does Kabbalah work? So to understand how Kabbalah works, we have to bring one of the famous Kabbalistic incantations, which many of us have, may have heard of before. It's called Abracadabra. Have you ever heard of this? This is a famous Kabbalistic incantation. It's Aramaic. It means Abra Kedabra. Abra, I will create, Bara Kedabra, as I speak. <clears throat> because how did God create the world? And God said, let there be light. And God said, let the world bring forth a life. And God said, and God said. Every time God spoke, he created something, which means the source of everything in this world is a word. Baruch she'amar ha'olam. Blessed is he who spoke and brought the world into existence. The world is made up of words. And if you know how to use those words, then you can change the world. You have to know what to say, right? Okay, we know this. Somebody's sick, and they give us a name, and they say, pray for him. So, come on, go to the doctor. What do you want from me? Somehow we know that we can say something and change the world. Now, if you know the right thing to say, you can change everything. 
you can you can turn the whole world upside down. You can you can make new things, do new things. You can do anything that you want, right? So when we when we pray, we're able to say things that are going to change the whole world, right? So that's why the two words in Hebrew, which are extremely familiar, daber and davar. Davar is a thing. Daber is to speak. Everything is a word. And if you know what to say, you can change the world. Right? Okay. So, when we pray, there's three things you can do with a prayer. You can praise God. Praise God. Nobody is really lining up to do that. Right? You know, people aren't going around saying, let's get a bunch of people together and praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Right? But that's one thing you can do. The other thing you can do is ask. Ask for things. The third thing you can do is thank. There's no question. Most people who pray are focusing on the asking. And that's how most people, if they were to compose a prayer, it would sound like, gimme, 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 gimme. I want this. I want that. I want this person to like me. I want to get this new car. I want to get this job. I want this. I want gimme, gimme, gimme. Most people pray not much different than a small child sitting on the lap of a nice, jolly fellow in a red suit, (laughs) which those of us in Israel might be familiar with. Because if you ever go to Israel on the Sukkot holiday, you'll see that Israelis don't get it. And they decorate their sukkahs with Xmas decorations. <laughs> they put up blinking lights and garlands and all kinds of stuff. They have no idea what this stuff is, you know. I, a friend of mine told me, he went into this one Hasidish sukkah, and there was a big picture of Santa Claus, you know, on the wall. So he says to the kid, he says, do you know who that is? And he says, some Rebbe. I don't know, you know. <laughs> Some of them dress in black, some gold. This one dresses in red, you know, got a big long white beard, you know. Hoi, 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 you know what I mean? But, but that's more or less how a person approaches God. Give me this, give me this, give me, give me, give me, give me. And also peace for Israel. We throw that in at the end because it makes it sound sincere, you know what I mean? But it's just a long list of stuff. Give me, give me. That's how most people pray. Some people can even thank I, I found that football players are some of the most religious people you'll ever find. When they make a touchdown, they fall to their knees. Thank you, God. It is a moment of religious inspiration to see. You know what I mean? Wow. You know, we made it. Not everybody, but uh, there was a person on Shaquille O'Neal's uh, basketball team. He's a basketball player, by the way. And uh, he said, somebody asked him, how good is Shaquille? I, I don't think I can even say this, but anyway, he says, if I was dribbling and I had Shaquille on one side and Jesus on the other, I would fake to Jesus and pass the ball to Shaquille. <laughs> now, there's a moment of religious inspiration for you. I, I, absolutely beautiful, you know. But uh, thanks. So I want to go to the praise part because people don't really get that. People say to me, what's the matter? God has an ego problem? Okay, God, you're almighty. Feeling better? (laughs) Feel good about yourself? You know? No, there's a big problem with praise. One of the big problems with praise is, of course, that none of us understand what we're saying. Right? Because uh, all the prayers are in Hebrew. So someone said to me, it's not true. I have an art scroll. I said, ah, so it used to be you didn't know what the prayers said in Hebrew. Now you don't know what the prayers say in English. (laughs) Right? So you open up a 
a sitter in Hebrew and it says and you open up your heart scroll and it says you are high, you are mighty, you are laudable, you are extolled. You are very extolled, extremely laudable, very high that I mentioned praiseworthy. And it looks like someone opened up a thesaurus and copied out a list of words because someone opened up a thesaurus and copied out a list of words and that's all it is. It doesn't have any meaning to us. So we don't know what we're saying. The words don't have any meaning to us. How are we supposed to relate to it? I think I'm doing God a big favor. Okay, God, you're almighty. So I'm going to share with you a moment from my youth. I grew up here in New York in the early 1960s. We only had one professional baseball team then, the Yankees. That remains true to this day. And uh, (laughs) just kidding. Nothing better to get a Mets fan upset than to... uh, Suggest that they're not as good as the Yankees. Anyway, so, um, but the manager just said that this last season. He says, look, let's face it, everybody loves the Yankees, and, you know, we just have to try to get anyone to like us. So that's kind of sad. But anyhow, so we were like the Yankees, and we were little kids, and we would go to the Yankees. It was so exciting. You know, we'd bring big, big signs. New York, love the Yankees. We'd say, Mickey Mantle. This was many years ago. Mickey Mantle, you know, wow, you're so great, you know. Wow, you guys are terrific. We love you. You try to get a seat near the dugout and you'd call them out. We love you guys. You're terrific. You're great. What for? Imagine if you had the schuss to become a bat boy. Oh, it's unbelievable. Uh, you know, then you get to sit there in a little Yankees uniform and bring them their bats. You give Mickey Mantle, Roger Maris, his bat. Wow, what an unbelievable schuss. Because these are people that we can love and we can admire because these people can hit a ball with a stick very far. And also they chew tobacco and spit. They know how to scratch themselves. And they do all kinds of other exciting things that baseball players do. And how could you not admire them? I don't look any better close up. It really doesn't help. (laughs) Anyway... They told me I have to get a new picture for my identity card in Israel because I have no more eyes. <laughs> so when you smile, your eyes disappear. So I have to like, you know. Anyway. So, um, but uh, people say, sports stars, you know? And it's true in every sport. Basketball, you know? People... <laughs> You see, as a basketball player, people love these people. They buy their sneakers, they buy their outfits, they buy all this kind of stuff. Michael Jordan came out with a cologne. I don't know what there is about Michael Jordan that makes you think you might want to smell like him, you know? <laughs> I mean, I admire his basketball playing, but, you know, a very tall, sweaty guy, I don't know, you know? Why would you want to smell like that? But but people are so desperate to be like their ball players. I guess it's also true by hockey players, but I could never follow hockey. There's a bunch of French Canadians playing another bunch of French Canadians, you know, and, and then all of a sudden they start hitting each other with their sticks, and then they go and they sit in their little booth. But, um, you know, someone told me they were at a fight once and a hockey game broke out. But, um, you know, but I guess if you like hockey players, it's the same thing. You know, you admire hockey players. You wear their mask when you go to kill people on Friday the 13th. But uh, whatever it might be, you know, you see these people and you're like, you just, you know, sports stars. We so admire them, you know, and we tell them, oh, man, you're so great. You're so great. Why? We have money on the game. We're trying to make them feel better. No, we love to tell people that we admire, that we love you, that you're great. Right. 
Okay, you move on in life. You know, it's not just baseball stars or sports stars anymore. Now it's rock stars. When you reach that certain age where you start worshipping rock stars, you start growing your hair like them. You start dressing or not dressing like them. You know? And, uh, you know, you pick up their movements and stuff, and the whole thing is pretty gross. But, um, you know, you ever hear these people interviewed? If they can get out two coherent sentences, it's absolutely unbelievable, you know? And, uh, and, and you're just, you're just watching these people, listening to these people, you know? But we love them because they play guitar, and we play guitar along with them, you know? No, 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 no. And we, you know, we, we, we put their pictures up, and we love them. People become groupies, follow these people around. I'll do anything for you, man. Well, you're the coolest, you're the greatest, you know? Um, I, there was a biography by a guy who called, he, he called his biography, Baby, You Can Drive My Car. This was the guy who drove the Beatles. For those of you who never heard of the Beatles, ask your parents or your grandparents, depending where you are in life. The Beatles were not merely musicians. They were gods. They were absolutely the coolest thing in the world. So this guy says, when they asked me, you know, John Lennon said, would you like to drive my car? I said, what's the question? I quit my job. You know what I mean? I left my family. I drove the Beatles around. This is unbelievable. You know? People are just awestruck by musicians. I lived in L.A. for a couple of years. You know? We used to see movie stars. This was very exciting. You could go out and watch, and then you suddenly see a movie star. These people are really not as interesting as you could imagine. I knew this girl who ran a uh, hardware store, and um, Harrison Ford used to come in all the time to shop. Harrison Ford really didn't want to be an actor. He wanted to be a carpenter. But he wasn't good enough at carpentry, so he became an actor. So, uh, you know, I, I, so I said, well, what's he like? This is one of the most boring people you've ever met in your life. He can't get out two coherent sentences, you know, and mostly he's excited to, like, you know, cut wood, you know. But he's, you know, really cool when he has a bullwhip on stage, you know, and, and that's it. You get to see a, a movie star. It's like, wow, it's so cool. These people are great, man. We love you, you know. So one time I was out in Los Angeles, and this guy Jack Lord walks by. He starred in a TV show called Hawaii Five O back in 1964 or something. I don't know what, but at the time he was very happening. <laughs> Jack Lord, and everyone's going, "Wow, Jack Lord!" You know. And I thought to myself, "Okay, what if it wasn't Jack Lord? What if it was the Lord Lord? What if God really exists?" Let's pretend for a minute, you know. As one person said to me, I know there's a God, I just don't believe it. You know what I mean? But let's say that there really is a God, right? Okay, we, and we pray. Baruch And there he is. Oh my God, I mean, that's you? Well, who'd you think you were talking to? Nobody, really, you know? Well, um, go ahead, what do you want to say? Elokei Avraham, oh, Avraham, I always liked him. Elokei Yitzchak, he was a great guy. Elokei Yag, you know what? Put down the sitter for a minute. Is there anything you want to say to me? Um, yeah, like, like you created the whole world, right? Wow, that's so cool. Um, you know those rings around Saturn? Those are very impressive. Thank you very much. Um, you know, gravity is such a great idea because, like, otherwise we'd float away and stuff, you know? Thank you. Um, the Milky Way is my favorite galaxy, not that I get out much. Um, th thank you. <laughs> what do we have to say to God? The infinite source of the universe who created everything. 
God has an ego problem? Trust me, if God had an ego problem, the first commandment would be, don't pray. I don't think I can handle it. You know what I mean? The way that we... Could you imagine there's some really famous guy and we finally managed to get a meeting with him and we talked to him and say, hi, how you doing? Yeah, anyways. And I pick up a newspaper in the middle. I start talking on my cell phone. He's like, listen, do me a favor. Go wait outside. What are you wasting my time for? You know? He is God, the creator of the universe. But he says... I know how you relate to people. When you admire somebody, you want to say, wow, I really admire you. Little kids were lining up in the middle of the night to go see J.K. Rowling. She wrote a book about Harry Potter, which if you haven't heard about it, you must have been living in a cave someplace. You know what I mean? And they lined up for hours to go and tell her, wow, we love you. Wow, you're my favorite author. People could stand there for hours to meet their favorite author. Well, I, I love all your books. Thank you very much. Next. Oh, um, yeah, I've always admired your work. Thank you very much. Next. What were you thinking when you wrote that? Thank you very much. Next. You know, <laughs> I just want to sign this and never see you again. You know, but people line up for hours because they'll tell people afterwards. Yeah, I met Stephen King. What was it like? Well, you know, he's an ordinary kind of guy. You know, what'd you talk about? Literature. Really? What'd you do? Well, I said, I like all your books. And he said, thank you very much. Next. <laughs> so what did you wait online for? What was the point of that? Why did you wait online to tell Stephen King, I like all your books? Because when I say, wow, you're so cool, whether it's to a rock star or to a sports star or to an author or to anybody, it's only because I understand that through that process, I feel a connection. God doesn't need any praise. Don't worry about it. God feels really good about himself. He wakes up in the morning, looks in the mirror, he sees nothing. He's invisible. Don't worry about it. He's infinite. He has everything he could possibly need. He doesn't need you to do anything. He's giving us the opportunity to talk to him as much as if I said right now your favorite actor or actress or movie star or sports star is suddenly going to walk into the room and you have a chance to go over and talk to them. What do you have to say to them? Other than, wow, man, I think you're so cool. I love the way you play. I love the way you perform. I love uh, all you move. What do you have to say? And now here's an opportunity for you to say to Kodesh Baruch Hu, wow, you created the whole universe from nothing. That's really pretty impressive. What was it like when there was nothing? Were you lonely? <laughs> so nice that you created us because, you know, I, I, it's a lot better than being not created, you know? Thank you very much. <laughs> but Kodesh Baruch Hu is sitting there giving us his Total attention. What do you want to say? Here is an unbelievable opportunity. What do you want to say? And that's the most important part of all of tefillah. That's it. If we didn't, if we didn't need anything, we probably would forget. But, but is that the only reason that when you're in a relationship, if the only reason a husband talks to his wife or a wife talks to her husband is because they want something? Hi, honey. Oh, I really love you. Oh, you're so wonderful. Give me money. You know, oh, hi, honey. Uh, oh, you look lovely tonight. Everything looks terrific. Where's supper? You know what I mean? That's so beautiful. Especially when you just cut to the chase and say, give me the money. Where's supper? <laughs> we don't even waste our time with the, hi, you're so wonderful thing, you know? But, but if that, is that it? Surely there must be something in a relationship that two people who care about each other want to say, regardless of whether or not I get anything in the process. So that's the first step. The first step is being able to say to God, wow, you're unbelievable. And, and I, I want to clarify something right now. This is one of the big problems. Yirat Hashem, or Yiras Hashem, 
where I come from. Or fear of God, as they translate it. Fear of God. What a terrible translation. Fear of God. Fear of God reminds me when I used to go into Manhattan in the 1970s, and I was sure somebody was going to mug me. Fear of Manhattan. You understand? So too, fear of God. Fear of the subways. You know what I mean? Fear. I'm afraid someone's going to come and hurt me. So fear of God is God up on a mountain with a lightning bolt waiting to get me. But that's not God. That's Zeus. You understand? We're not even into monotheism. You know, God doesn't stand up there on a mountain with a lightning bolt waiting to get us. You know, the whole image is terrible. But that's why it sounds like when you hear fear of God, fear of God, that's not what Yeres Hashem is. It means to be in awe of God. To be in awe means that you look through the world and say, wow. Wow. If you can't say wow, then you're missing out on one of the great things of this world. People who, you know, I, I live in Yerushalayim, when you have one of these sunsets and the whole sky is colored with this whole beautiful color. It just happened the other night, you know, there was, it, was, it was one night we were in, sitting you know, by the by the table, and somebody noticed the sunset. And we opened up the opened up the, the the blinds, and we all looked down. We said, "Wow, look at that!" And it was just hypnotic, such beauty. One of the problems of living in Israel is that we don't have autumn in the traditional sense because we don't have any deciduous forests, so we don't have all the trees turning colors. But if you happen to appreciate that, and you're looking at a forest. You know, where all the trees have changed colors and it's so dramatic and so beautiful. You look at it and you say, wow. Sometimes you hear a piece of music and it's just so beautiful. You say, wow. There are certain things where you're filled with a sense of awe. This is unbelievable. When you can walk through this world walking with a sense of wow, with a sense of awe, that's called Yeres Hashem. And that makes us want to be able to say, wow, God, that's unbelievable. I have to tell you, there are so many people in this world who miss the forest for the trees. You know, they're so busy going and going and going that they miss some of the most beautiful things. They, they miss that opportunity to see something and say, wow. Rabbi Victor Miller, that's all. When he was in his 90s yet, they say you could see him on the streets of Brooklyn, surrounded by a group of young men, his students, and they were all staring. And, and if you moved closely, you'd see he had a bunch of apple seeds in his hands. And he was explaining what an apple seed is, and how you get an apple tree, and what apples are, and how amazing it is, and how it works, and how great it is, and how we miss this. Tangerines, just for a moment. Because this is the example someone gave me, and I applied this to my own life, and that's why I just take tangerines, or in Israel it's clementinas, you know. You know? I can't speak for everybody else, but traditionally, the way that one eats a tangerine is you peel it and stiff it in your mouth. You understand? And if there are pits, you spit them out. Right? Okay, that's it. But if you stop for a moment and look at the tangerine after you peel it, and oh, looks nice. You smell it. Oh, smells beautiful. Take off a piece. Look at it. Look how it looks. Take a bite. Enjoy the bite. Oh, isn't that unbelievable? Look what it. That's what. That's what it is to have an appreciation of the bria. To look at everything in creation and go, wow. That's unbelievable. And that brings us to the next step, which is thanks. You know, there are people who don't know how to, how to appreciate things. And they are some of the poorest people in the world. Because when you learn how to appreciate things, when you learn how to say thank you, I don't mean thank you like the automatic, 
What do you say? Thank you. That already today, that's already good. Pesach Kron tells the story about you know the mother was shopping in the fruit store and they they give the little boy a banana. The mother says, "What do you say?" He says, "Peel it." You know then? That's already good. You know. So if you already know how to say thank you, say thank you, thank you. You know, it's not much, but at least it's something. You know. But that's a little sad. What's real appreciation? What's real appreciation? Real appreciation is when you look at something and you can see its greatness. They're like, wow. And I have to tell you, people ask me this question. They say, why does God do so many bad things to me? And I said, he doesn't. He does so many good things to you, but you take credit for that. And when something bad happens, suddenly you turn around and say, where's God? For example, you know when you're driving, and I'm speaking to the people here who are in that age group where your insurance is very high, and it should be, because you're totally irresponsible. I had a student who... Uh, told me that her father would not let her drive on the highway until he could drive with her and watch her drive while she was putting on her makeup. He says, I know you're going to do it anyway, so I just have to make sure you can do it, you know? (laughs) But someone said to me once, says, why don't they give a road test for real? You know, with the music blasting, one hand out the window, you know what I mean? A can of Coke in the other hand while you're steering with your elbow, you know what I mean? Because that's how most people drive. How many people have you ever saw who drive with their hands at 2 o'clock and 10 o'clock between 18 and 23 miles an hour checking their their mirrors every three seconds? (laughs) That's not a driver. That's a display on It's a Small World, you know? (laughs) Nobody drives like that, you know? So people are driving, right? So you know that sometimes you start to drive and suddenly you realize that you're about to get into an accident. And whenever you get into an accident, you switch into slow motion mode. Oh, no. And you see it coming. Boom, 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 boom. And somehow you miss the car. And, you, and beforehand you were saying, please, God, please, God. You know? And as soon as you pass it by, you say, wow, I am such a great driver. <laughs> So b- beforehand, obviously I was turning to God for help. Once I did it, <laughs> like the story of this person who was late for an appointment, and he says, God, I need your help. There's never any parking around here. Please, please, I need your help. Please get me a parking space. And then right in front of the place, a car pulls out, and the person says, never mind, God, I found one. <laughs> that person doesn't even realize, you know, all the good that God does for us on a regular basis, but we don't even look at it. People are so unhappy in life because they look at everything they're missing instead of everything they have. There is so much... I'm going to share with you something that I started doing about 10 years ago, and I tell you, it changed my life. I have given this advice to people over the years. They tell me it's changed their life. I once wrote this in an article, and somebody came to me a week later and said, I read that article, I started doing it, it changed my life. And uh, I, I share this insight with you. When you pray three times a day, so most of it, unfortunately, like I said, a lot of the words don't mean anything does, even if we can translate it. So in the first brach of Shemona Esrei, right, the first blessing, it says, Gomel chasodim tovim v'konei hakol, right, which, if I don't know the Hebrew, I look in the English, he bestows loving kindness and is master of all. Much more helpful, yeah? Doesn't mean anything to me. So this is what I started doing. Gomel chasodim tovim. He does kindnesses. Like what? Pick something good in your life. Something that God has done for you. Pick something. You know? 
So I started at the beginning, it was a little stilted, you know, you look for good things in life, well, I'm so glad they have printing. Imagine they used to only be able to write things by hand, now we have this laser printing, you can get all these great books. Wow, glass, what a great idea, you can look through it, it keeps out the elements, you know, you know, uh, clocks, that's great, we can tell time, you know, air conditioning on a hot day, heat on a cold day, wow, look at all this great stuff that we have. Then I started looking, you know, at, uh, you know, making sure that everything was running right in your body. Oh, thank God I can see, thank God I can hear, those sort of things, you know. I was once speaking for a school for special children, and when I went to look over the school, I saw there was one kid, they were putting drops in their eyes. I said, what's that for? They said, their eyes don't make tears. They have to artificially keep putting drops. So by Mincha, I said, Baruch Hashem, thank God my eyes make, make tears. I don't have to have someone putting drops in my eyes, you know. And then after a while, I started finding so many good things in my life that I had to start cheating. I couldn't pick one thing, you know. I'd get off of a plane, you know, and I had five, six, seven things to thank God for, of things that went well, you know. I remember there was one time I was on a plane flying from Israel to England. The entire plane was filled with um, basically non-Jewish people. And I was the only Jewish religious person on the plane, and, and the seat next to me was empty. And it was like the only seat that was still empty. And all of a sudden, this Rosh Hashiva walks in on the plane. He looks around, sits down right next to me. And I said, wow, that's, that's you know, really pretty lucky that there's only two religious Jews in this plane, and we you know, ended up sitting next to each other. And he said to me, lucky? He says, I stay up the night before I'm going to fly and I pray that God should allow me to sit next to a person that I can sit and speak with Torah in on the flight. <laughs> what you learn from this is the power of prayer. I said, I don't think so because I was praying to have an empty seat next to me. So. <laughs> so my wife said, it just shows you how much your prayer is worth and how much his is. That's all, you know. You know, years ago, I was giving a whole talk on prayer, and then someone handed me a drink, and I went, mana, 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 mana. <laughs> and someone said, Rabbi, is that what you mean when you say praying? Baruch, <laughs> Oh, that's good. You know, it's always good, sometimes on a really hot day, and I, as the speaker, I have a cold drink, and I'm picking it up, and I'm going, and everyone in the audience is going. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that gives you something to pray for. Anyway, so um, so when you can appreciate things. So I do is every day, three times a day, I look at something good that's in my life. And I say, and it comes from God. I have to tell you, it changes your whole life because... Do you ever see that bumper sticker? I don't know if it's still around. I remember seeing it years ago. God, what have you done for me lately? You know? You know, you know what, what do you ever do for me? So I gave you life. You know, I made, I made the sunshine. I, you know, you, you got through the day. You know, you still have this, you still have that. You have this, you have that. Yeah, yeah, but I'm looking for something big. <laughs> you know? What have you done for me dramatically today? How you know, sad. Because you never appreciate all the good in your life. And if you don't appreciate all the good in your life, then look at all of the blessings that slip by. 
It's the person who just pops the tangerine in his mouth without ever stopping to think about it. But when you start to look at all the good that you have and all the sense of appreciation, what, isn't it true in a marriage? You know, when, when, when people don't take the time to appreciate each other, you know? But when you start to appreciate, wow, look what you did for me. Wow, look what you did for me. Isn't that so beautiful? And the more that I appreciate people and I look at all the good, you know, it, it changes your whole life. It changes all your relationships. It changes everything about you. You train yourself to look for the good and say thank you. And there are very few people in this world who can turn around and say that I don't have a life that's filled with blessing. Filled with blessing. You know? Yeah. We have problems. Everybody has problems. Everybody has problems. But if that if that's your life, if your whole life becomes your problems, and I know people like this, we all know people like this. That's their whole life. You know, they sit and they feel sorry for themselves and they complain. Oh, I don't have this and I don't have that and I have this problem and I have that problem. And that's their whole life. A tragedy. And some people have a life that's filled with blessing. Filled with blessing. The third thing is asking, but I have to tell you that if you change the way you look at life, which is first I focus on what we call shavach, I say, wow, God, unbelievable. I have a relationship with God. He's, he's unbelievable. He's all-powerful. Look at all the stuff that he does. And Haida, look at all the good in my life. Look how much I've been received. Look how much I've gotten. Now you'll ask, but you'll ask for different things. God, there's so little that I know and I want to understand more so I can have this unbelievable pleasure from being close to you. You grant the person understanding. God, I feel distant from you. Yeah. God, uh, uh, strengthen the good people in the world. Weaken the bad people in the world. You know? Bring the Mashiach. Rebuild the, the, the temple. Bring the Jews back to where they're supposed to be. How many people in their heart of hearts really believe that you have the power to usher in the Messianic era? Because you do. And make no mistake about it. If the Mashiach is going to come in our days, it's going to be because of the people in this room. Nobody else. I'm going on a little tangent here, but it's extremely important. More than anything, the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, that force inside of you that wants to stop you from becoming great, he doesn't want you to sin. That's small time stuff. More than anything, what he wants to do is convince you that you don't count. Convince you that it doesn't make a difference what you do. You could say whatever you want. I could pray. I could not pray. I could make a bracha, not make a bracha. I could do. You really think God cares if I... So somebody says to me once, Rabbi, um, who did uh, Cain and Abel marry? I said, well, Abel didn't marry anybody. He got killed by his brother. So, okay, so who did Cain marry? So Cain, he married his twin sister. Rabbi, isn't that incest? Yes. By the way, in case anybody's wondering, let's go on record with that. Yes, that is incest. It is illegal. You know? Even though there's advantages because you only have to invite one side to the wedding. It doesn't make a difference. <laughs> that is illegal. Husband, bro- brother, sister is Asur, Right? So, um, so he says, so why did God create a world where the only way to populate it was through incest? He said, because there was only other, one other option he had. He could have made 25 men and 25 women. And then let everybody marry each other. He says, but if he would have done that, then everybody could say the following. If I die, it doesn't make a difference to the world. But, 
if there are only one person in this world, then if I die, there's no more world. And God preferred to populate the world through incest so that every person could say, I am that one person. That one person for whom the world was created, that's me. I am the most important person in the world. And the Gemara says a person is obligated every day to say, Bishvili nivraha olam, the world was created for me. There is nobody more important than you. You think you pick up a sitter and you, and you pray and nothing happens? You know, there have been so many rockets that have been fired. And it's never, and all the people who were, who, who were hurt and who were killed, it's terrible. But, the, but the, the world keeps saying, look how disproportionate it is. So few people have been killed from Israel's side. And Israel, the people who weren't religious, they said, that's only because of miracles. It doesn't make any sense. You're right. There should have been hundreds of casualties. But God's watching out for us. And you know why that missile didn't kill anybody? Because somebody in this room said a prayer. That's why. Because somebody said, God, watch out for those people who are under attack. You know why there wasn't a bloodbath in Gaza? You know what it is? Urban warfare with booby traps and all the things that were going on. You know why? Because somebody in this room said a prayer. God, watch out for those soldiers. Make no mistake about it. It wasn't for any other reason. It's because somebody here picks up a sitter and prays. Someone opens up a Tehillim. Someone opens up a book of Psalms and prays. That's the only reason. That's the only power we have to change a reality in this world. There was a famous story with Nachshon Waxman, who was a soldier who was kidnapped. And uh, he was being held captive in an Arab village not far from his home in Ramot. And there was a big prayer gathering at the Western Wall. And people were praying that his life should be saved. And that Friday night, I live in a neighborhood called Harnof. All of the people of Harnof came out and davened together in the streets. So it should, that he should be saved. In his, in his community in Ramot, everybody came out and davened in the streets. And that Friday night, Nebuch, the soldiers came and told him that you know, we tried to save your son, and he got killed. So afterwards, a secular Israeli journalist said to Mr. Waxman, all these people were praying for your son's welfare. How come their prayers weren't answered? It takes a secular Israeli journalist to ask a father who's lost his child a question like that. You know, If I was there, I would have said, did you pray? Did you go to the Western Wall? No? Maybe that's why. But nobody asked me. But uh, I got what to say. But when people came by the Shiva home, I'll tell you how he answered this question. He said, the soldiers who burst in to try to save my son, they came into this village and they burst into the house and they encountered a steel door like a safe. And they had to put explosives and blow it open. They hadn't anticipated that. And while we were trying to blow open the door, hand grenades were going and machine guns were firing. I don't know how any of us got out of there alive. We should have all been killed, but we managed to blow open the door. But by the time we got in, they had already killed your son. And Mr. Waxman said, the Jewish people prayed to save the life of a Jewish child, and their prayers were answered. It just wasn't my son. But that a person would pray, and the prayer would go, prayer would go to waste? Impossible. Impossible. Every single prayer that we say stops a bullet, stops a piece of shrapnel, 
It has the ability to be able to change the reality of the world that we live in. Abracadabra. I have the ability to speak and to create with that power. That's the power that we have. My friends, if we knew what to pray for, if we understood the power that we had, so I'm going to tell a Hasidic story, and it's hard for me because I'm not of Hasidic stock. And I don't really tell Hasidic stories, but I'm going to do the best that I can. There's a story in the town of Bedichev with the great saint, Rabbi Levi Bedichev, who is known as the Bedichev. And it was cold Idre night. It was Yom Kippur night. And the entire town was gathered together in the main synagogue. They were all wearing their white robes. They all had their special prayer books, their machzer that they were going to say on Yom Kippur, and everybody was gathered around. And the holy Rebbe Levi Yitzchak Pedichev was sitting up in the front of the shul, and the Gabbai was waiting to give the bang on the bima, indicating that the elders of the community should take out all the Sifrei Torah and gather around and begin the Kol Nidri service. And the Rebbe was not giving the signal, and it was getting late even for Hasidim. So he goes over and he says, Rebbe, what are we waiting for? And he says, Yosula the tailor is not here. And he looks around and he sees there's one seat empty. He says, Rebbe, you want me to get him? He says, yeah. So he runs through the streets to the little shack on the outskirts of town where Yosula the tailor lives because in every single story, the guy's name is Yosula. <laughs> and he says, goes to Yosula's house and he knocks at the door and Yosula comes to the door and he's still in his pajamas. He says, Yosla, what are you doing? It's cold Idre night. It's Yom Kippur. Everybody's in town. The Rebbe's waiting for you. And he says, tell the Rebbe I'm not coming. He says, what do you mean you're not coming? Tell the Rebbe I'm on strike. You can't be on strike. You go on strike on Yom Kippur. God will strike you. You've got to come to shul. Everybody's there. Everybody's be there. He says, tell the Rebbe I'm not coming unless he promises to give me a machzer, the prayer book for Yom Kippur. He says, okay, okay, I'll tell him, you get dressed. And he runs to the town and he comes in the shul and there's a hustle bustle. Everyone's trying to figure out what's going on. And he says, Rebbe, Yosla says, he's not going to come unless you promise to give him a boxer. He says, tell him, I promise. Okay. And he runs to this town and now Yosla is dressed and he grows by the arm and they run through the streets and they come into shul. And he goes up to the Rebbe and the Rebbe gives him a boxer and he goes to his seat and the Gabba gives a bang and they take out the Sifri Torah and they begin, Kol Nidre. That's not part of the story, but I know it's the only chance I'll ever get to sing Kol Nidre. Anyway, so uh, anyway, they finish the whole service, and everybody is supposed to go home at this point. There's only special tefillot, special prayers at the end that the truly righteous and pious say. But that year, everybody was righteous and pious, and nobody went home, and they all said the extra prayers. And finally, the service was over, and the Rebbe comes over to Yosla at the end, and he says, Yosla, what happened? And Yosla turns to the Rebbe, and the whole town leans in. <laughs> they all knew they were in the middle of a Hasidic story, and they wanted to find out how it ended. You understand? <laughs> so Yosla says, okay, fine. <laughs> You all know me here. I've lived in this town my whole life. I was here with my wife, and I've been very successful. I had two sons. I married them off. They've all moved far away, and they've all been very successful in business. You know, they're taken care of. They're not rich, but they're making their ends meet. Fine. And me, you know, I did a very fine business here as a tailor. And I owned my home with the tailor shop in the, in the basement. 
you know, on the, on the ground floor. And uh, I was making a fine business. I had savings for my old age. Everything was going great. Then about five years ago, my wife passed away. And I didn't know how I was going to make it because I depended on my wife for everything. She was my whole life. But I said, okay, God's been good to me. God's been good to me. I still have my business. I have my store. I have my house. I have my savings. I'll be okay. And then about three years ago, I got arthritis. It was very hard for me to sew. And when I did, it didn't come out so well. And I started to lose business. And I said, okay, I'm not making a great business, but I'm still making a living, and I have my savings, and I have my house, and everything will be fine. Then about two years ago, my eyesight started to go. It took me a very long time just to thread the needle. And then with my arthritis and my bad eyesight, it was coming out very slowly and very poorly. I lost most of my customers. I was barely making a living. Only my loyal customers stayed with me. And before Shoshana, they had a lot of clothing that they had given me to, to tailor. And they said, don't worry, Yusla, take your time, take your time. I had a whole backlog of clothes. This year, before Shoshana, there was a fire, burnt down my house. And I had to pay everybody back for their clothing, for my savings. And now I was destitute. I moved to the little abandoned shack on the outskirts of town. And I said, okay, okay, look, you know, God's still been good to me. I'll, I'll manage. And this morning it was Yom Kippur, and I realized, it was Arab Yom Kippur, I realized I didn't have a maksa. And I said, God, I don't know the tefillot by heart. I can't daven without a maksa. That's it. I'm going on strike until you give me a maksa. You've pushed me too far. And when the Rebbe said he'd give me a maksa, so I came to shul. And everyone starts to nod. And the Rebbe lets out a terrible sigh, and he says, Yasala, Yasala, you had God by the throat, and all you asked for was a machza? You could have asked for the redemption, and you would have gotten it. But you think so small. Because if we spent more time on Shavach, on appreciating how great God is, and on Haidah, and looking at how much we have in our life, we'd ask for big things. I don't know how many of us would make a list and say, I want the exiles to be gathered together. And by the way, let me make a, a little note here, because I've heard that there are people who are saying, you know, that, uh, you know, we're in for a really rough time. We probably are. And, uh, you know, and uh, whether or not it has to do with events that are going to take place on January 20th or not, I don't really know. Somebody said that once he becomes president, it'll be an abomination. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really know. I can make jokes. I live in Israel. And um, so there are people who say, oh, we have to quickly go to Israel. Listen, the whole world's going to be in for rough times. It's going to be a rough time. I can't tell you. Listen, I think it's a great idea to move to Israel. But, but if you're going to go, you're going to go because, you know, I want to go to Israel. I, my wife was just talking to this, uh, this woman who she and her husband made Aliyah with all their kids. And she doesn't particularly like Israel. You know, and the kids aren't particularly fitting in, and her husband keeps coming back to America to work because they can't make a living in Israel. You know, and I said, why they move here? You know, if he's in America and she's unhappy, and you know, she said, I don't know. I, I, I really should have asked her that question. So, if you really want to come, I have to tell you, you know, and I know this will lose my standing in the Aliyah Commission, but uh, it's hard in Israel. Everything is hard. Not only is it hard, but we make it extra hard for you. Just because that's how we are. You know, there's no reason for it. 
the first time I went to open a bank account in Israel, I'll never forget. I, I opened my first bank account here in America. They were so happy to see me, you know. I went over. They said, oh, welcome, Mr. Olavsky, for the forms. What, what type of checks would you like? Would you like mountain scenes? Would you like, you know, uh, this type of scene? This? Do you want to put your little initial? What number do you want the checks to start at? Wait, it also comes with a holder. Do you want leather? Do you want Western leather? Do you want elephant hide? I was like, elephant hide? That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. Really elephant hide. He said, oh, by the way, here's a toaster, you know. <laughs> by the way, now banks are so bad that if you buy a toaster, they give you a bank. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. But if you buy a toaster, they give you a bank. That's the joke. Anyway, so... <laughs> I saw this cartoon where a guy goes into a bank and the teller holds up a gun and says, stick him up. <laughs> but no bank jokes. It's too sad. But anyhow, <laughs> I go to Israel and there's a guy there smoking under the no smoking sign reading the paper, you know. And I said, um, Slicha. And he gave me the Israeli universal symbol for, excuse me, sir, I'll be with you in a moment. <laughs> Which Israelis have taken for granted, but there was an Israeli who came to America, you know, and he was in an Italian neighborhood. <laughs> and he was like waiting to pick up somebody, and the guy starts beeping, and he goes like this, and the guy came out with a gun, you know. He was like, one second, I come from Israel, that must mean something different. Rega, <laughs> rega, you know. And... Um, and, uh, you know, I said, what do you, he says, what do you want? I said, uh, I want to open an account. He says, not here, it's downstairs. I go downstairs, I went on a line. No, it's not over here, it's not over here, it's not over here. Finally, ends up, it was him. It was really him the whole time. <laughs> so I come back up to him, and there are th- three people ahead of me, then two people, and there's one person ahead of me. And uh, the guy says, uh, I said, I want to open a bank account. He says, um, can't do it now, come back in the afternoon. <laughs> so I froze for a moment then I said I need to sell the Torah bone and he says Besedu Avalamato Tzoeik what are you yelling for <laughs> well we make it difficult on purpose I don't know why I don't know why there, an Israeli um, official feels he hasn't done his job if you manage to accomplish what you want in one visit. <laughs> you can bring everything you want, including your dental records. You know what I mean? Your report cards from second grade. It doesn't matter. He's going to find something you're missing. And if he can't find anything, he says, you can't return without the witch's broomstick. <laughs> follow the yellow brick road. Follow the... Follow the follow, you know, it puts you on a quest or a mission. You know what I mean? They have to make an issue out of it. You know? I don't know why it's so difficult, but it's difficult. It's difficult. I happen to think it's great to live there, but it's it's hard. Anyone who tells you that it's easy is making a mistake. You know, it's a hard place. You know, but uh, but if you decide that's the place for you to go, that's great. But but I wouldn't go there simply because you know I'm afraid. Don't worry about it. We Jews are tough people. We've been through a lot. We're going to be through a lot wherever we are. You know. So um, you know. But there's only one way that we can change the situation here, there, whether it's the economic situation or the military situation or the... I mean, can you imagine we have all of these troops in Gaza and we're blowing up all these tunnels and we, we're occupied so much area and they're still shooting missiles at us? Because we can't stop it. We can't stop it. There's only one thing that's going to stop it. That's only weapon that we have is the weapon that they have, Yishmael. 
God will hear. And, and that's us. We're going to be able to pick up a sitter. <laughs> and um, you want the Rosh Hashiva pose? <laughs> anyway, we're going to be able to pick up a sitter, and that's the only way we're going to change the world. And, and make no mistake about it, you can change the world. Your prayer will make that difference. And that's the gift that we have. Hakol Kol Yaakov. It's the voice of Jacob that's going to counter the Ishmael that God will hear him. You have the ability to be able to change things in this world. We're living in very difficult times. And nobody can afford to let that power go to waste. Please God, all of us will be able to use it to be able to make the world not the way it is, but the way it should be. Thank you.